You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, today we are in uh, back in the book of Jonah, uh, which you just heard read all of chapter one. It's an amazing chapter, isn't it? And let me kind of jump into this chapter uh, by drawing your attention back to uh, the year 2008. This is going to really date me. Uh, some of you might uh, have remembered in 2008 this movie called Vantage Point. came out in 2008. Uh, most of you probably didn't because it wasn't a great movie. Uh, but it was an interesting idea for a movie. So here's uh, the essential sort of plot line. Um, the president of the United States is in Spain, and he's there to sign this treaty to sort of counteract terrorism, to kind of unite forces, uh, several different countries against terrorism. And part of this summit uh, takes place in this open city plaza. So they're out in this plaza, all the sort of dignitaries, our president's there, all, all that good stuff. And as the president gets up to speak, a shot rings out. It's an assassination attempt. And uh, the president is hit. Uh, and you can just imagine that scene, pandemonium, you know, ensues. Uh, and then three minutes later, in the midst of all the craziness, a bomb goes off. Okay, so that's the scene that happens. You get to the end of that scene, and then the tape rewinds 20 minutes, and you come back to the beginning of all the events, the lead up to the event, the assassination attempt, the bomb going off, and you watch everything again, but through a different person's eyes. Uh, you, you first see it through Dennis Quaid's eyes. He's a Secret Service agent. Uh, then you see it through the eyes of this Spanish police officer. Then through the eyes of this American tourist. Then through the president's eyes. And uh, on and on. There's five different views. It, it gets to the end of that scene. It rewinds again. You're watching it through someone else's lens. And it, what's interesting about that movie is that um, with each person's eyes that you're seeing it through, you get more and more texture. You're getting to see more and more of the events. You're getting to see more and more of the details and the sort of gaps in the story begin to fill in. Now, in a lot of ways, when I think about Jonah 1, this is part of what God is doing for us. In Jonah chapter 1, the, the central event, the, the big time thing that just sort of takes center stage in this chapter is the pursuing grace of God. That is what takes center stage. But Jonah 1 shows the pursuing grace of God through two views, uh, two vantage points, if you will. Uh, vantage point one, view one, is the pursuing grace of God through the eyes of these pagan sailors. They're just sort of ambushed. They just kind of stumble into the grace of God in Jonah chapter 1. Uh, so we get to see it through their eyes. But we also get to see uh, the pursuing grace of, eye, uh, of God through the eyes of this prodigal prophet uh, through Jonah. And with each of these two views, we're learning more. We're seeing more. Some of the gaps uh, of the pursuing grace of God are being filled in. So uh, what I want to do today is really simple. I just want to work through Jonah chapter 1 with you. And I want to look at the pursuing grace of God through both of these two views. So we'll start with uh, the view from the eyes of these pagan sailors. The pursuing grace of God through the eyes of these pagan sailors. Now put yourself in their place for a moment. They're minding their own business when this unfamiliar face approaches them. They, they have no idea who Jonah is. They have no idea that he is a prophet on the run from God. They, they aren't privy to any of that information, right, right? And most importantly, they have no idea who Jonah's God is. 
They have no idea that, that Jonah's God is a God of grace, in particular, pursuing grace. They, they have no idea of this God. And they have no idea that, that the pursuing grace of God has never lost a race. They don't know any of these things when they meet the prodigal prophet. All they know is that Jonah has paid his fare and he has boarded the boat. But they will not be in the dark for long, right? Uh, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind. You might circle that word great. Seven times that word great shows up, right? That Hebrew word gadol. It's, it's saying something about the size and severity of this storm. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, obviously, the narrator in using that word gadol seven times he is saying something about the size, the severity of that storm, right? This is what he's trying to acclimate us to and what he's trying to highlight as he describes the storm. He is, he is letting us know right off the get-go that this is not a light shower. This is a life-threatening hurricane. That, that's what's happening in Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. Now, let me just pause here and make one observation. One thing that this story shows us, and the Bible uh, throughout shows us uh, this truth, is that personal sin always carries communal consequences. This is one thing we learn in Jonah chapter 1. Personal sin always carries communal consequences. The waves of Jonah's rebellion are crashing into the boat of these sailors. Personal sin always carries communal consequences. This is always true of sin. Do you remember the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7? Achan sins by taking plunder that, that God said, don't, don't take, but, but he took it. And here's the result, communal consequences, right? The, the people of Israel are defeated in their next battle. Achan's whole family is swallowed up by the wrath of God. Right? Personal sin carries communal consequences. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, David, in an act of pride and of defiance against God, he counts the people of Israel. He takes a census that God said, don't, don't do that. You don't need to do that. I, you can trust me. You don't have to trust in people. Uh, David, trust me. But, but he counts the people of Israel. It's a clear breaking of the command of God. And, and that personal sin had communal consequences. 70,000 people, uh, 70,000 men of Israel died because of David's sin. Personal sin always carries communal consequences. And it's true in our story here. The lives of these sailors are at risk because of Jonah's sin. And it is true in your life. The waves of your sin will crash into those closest around you. There is no dad in here who gets by with sinning without those communal consequences. Starting in your, maybe your marriage, your family and kids, then into your church and community. There's none of us that just sin in a vacuum. Just allow this story to teach us that. That our sin has communal consequences. The waves of our rebellion are going to crash into those around us. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. So these sailors quickly realize that this is a life-threatening situation. Their life is at, at risk. 
And, and when they realize that, in their fear, they respond in two ways, right? Here's plan A. Uh, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. As one commentator uh, kind of says in this moment of, of the story, he calls this scene pantheistic panic. And I think there's truth to that. That's what's happening. They had the dominant view of God in their day. They had a God for everything and everyone. There was the God of the sea, of the land, of fertility, of crops, of the rain, of the sun. Just a God for everything. And so their strategy in a moment of terror was to get as many people praying to as many gods as possible. And surely if we can get the right person praying, and that right person is praying the right prayer, surely it will appease the right God. That, that was their strategy. It was sort of like a combination lock that we're just trying to figure out the code to, to unlock this thing. This was their strategy. But when that didn't work, they went to plan B. And you see plan B. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, this is a picture of what I look like when I'm cleaning the house. This is it right here. I just need like 10 minutes uh, to declutter any house. I just come through with a trash bag and everything's going in it. Uh, this is my version of house cleaning. This is the pragmatic approach, right? Uh, the sailors are looking at their life and they're saying, if God won't save us, if we can't find a God to do that work, we'll just have to save ourselves. So, so this is their approach. It's, it's self-salvation. Now, let's just pause here for a moment and, and consider the view of the, the narrator. The narrator is, is obviously trying to teach us something. It's apparent from the very beginning, the way that he's presenting the story, he is showing us that these sailors... They don't have a view of the world or a view of God that is big enough for them to understand the situation that they're in. We know from reading the story that their problem isn't a storm. Their problem isn't the weight of their cargo. Their problem isn't one of their little g-gods that they just have to figure out the code to appease. That is not their problem. Their problem is God. That's their problem. But their view of God, their view of the world is not big enough to see and understand that. Now, in many ways, I think they stand in this story for a picture of our confused culture. We live in a culture whose main problem is God, but who at the same time refuses to even recognize the reality of God. That's our culture. And in the middle of refusing to, to recognize the reality of that big G God, we have a culture that's constantly calling out to these little G gods. The little G gods of, of money and possessions, of sex and success and power and control, calling on those gods, trying to appease those gods, trying to get those gods to come and save them. Now, when we read this story, it is intended by God to do something to our hearts. When we read this story, our hearts should be breaking for these sailors and uh, for, for our city. These sailors are in a lot of ways just a stand-in for, for our city, for our culture. It's an invitation from God to, to feel their desperation, for our hearts to break over their plight. But, but look at where we find Jonah in verse 5. In, in verse 5, you get to the end of it. Jonah has gone down into the boat 
and Jonah is fast asleep. And in a lot of ways, if, if the sailors are a stand-in in a picture of our confused culture, Jonah is a stand-in and a picture of the sleepy church, of sleepy followers of Jesus, of followers of Jesus who have just grown numb to the greatest realities of life, have just grown numb to that Everyone in your neighborhood, everyone that you work with, everyone that you see in the grocery store, everyone that you have ever known will either spend forever with God in heaven or forever apart from God in hell. Is that not sobering to consider? And Jonah's asleep. He's asleep to these huge realities. Then you get to verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, and you can just picture, uh, this captain is agitated, he's scared, he's angry, and he finds Jonah sleeping. And he looks at Jonah and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? I just love the fact that sarcasm is at least 2,800 years old, right? I mean, he's just pouring it on Jonah as he finds him asleep in the bottom of this boat. The captain makes the trip down into the boat, and there he finds Jonah sleeping, and he looks at the sleeper and says, what is wrong with you? How can you be asleep in the middle of this? And Jonah is out. The sleep is deep, right? And the captain looks at Jonah and says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The captain looks at Jonah and says, would you please stop sleeping and would you start praying? What a great invitation to the church of Jesus Christ. Would you wake up from your slumber and would you start praying? Uh, one of our sort of primary initiatives of 2021 is that we would go deeper into the ache with Jesus. Uh, if you remember back to November, we spent some time in those parables of Luke 15, and we just, we just got to see God's aching heart for perishing people, uh, for people who are far from him, uh, that his heart bleeds for perishing people. His heart aches for perishing people, and we've just been asking God to more and more give us that ache. And this is really the invitation of, of this part of the text. It's to, to come deeper into the ache with Jesus. Uh, back at the first of the year, and we're just doing this every quarter. We're about to do it again here in just a few more weeks. We, we have been filling out who's your one card, just asking the Lord for one person that is far from Jesus that we can pray for and then pursue. And back in January, the, the beginning of January, we all took that step of a church, uh, asking the Lord to clarify that one person in our life that, that Jesus would have us run after. Um, in, in January, I, I took those uh, roughly 500 cards that we got back, and uh, for most of the last three months, they have been sitting on my desk so that every week I can look at that stack of cards representing human beings, precious souls who will spend forever in heaven or in hell. For, for like in a billion years from now, in a trillion years from now, we'll be with God in heaven or apart from God in hell. And Jonah, this story is just inviting us to wake up to those realities. 
And I just want to give you a, a, just a pastoral sort of prodding. Uh, we're right to the end of that first quarter. And so whoever that one was that you're asking God to, to save and to rescue, that you're praying for, and that you committed to pursue, that's engaging in a conversation. We just have, just have a few weeks left in the first quarter of the year, so make sure in the next couple of weeks that you get after that conversation, that you engage that person in a conversation about Jesus. And let's just see what Jesus has. Maybe he has up his sleeve the saving of that person that you love, that you wrote down their name. Then you get to verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then as soon as the lot fell on Jonah, they put him on trial. Look at verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? They're looking at Jonah and saying, we know now you're the problem, but we want to know why you're the problem. Tell us what's going on here, Jonah. And then you get to verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That is a beautiful confession professional statement. Jonah is a worshiper of God, the God of heaven who created everything. And then notice their response in verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, this is the moment in this text where the pagan sailors went from what you might call an ignorant fear to an informed fear. They just connected the dots that Jonah's not our problem. That Jonah is not the issue. Jonah's God is our problem. That it's an informed fear now. This, this was the moment they walked out of the darkness and, and into the light. The sailors started to see that God's pursuing Jonah. And they just happened to be in the path of God's pursuit. Then you get to verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And here comes Jonah's surprising response. Look at, uh, look at verse 12. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Uh, but look at their reaction in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, this is one of the ironies of the story. The pagans are more concerned about the life of the prophet than the prophet is for the life of the pagans. Isn't that, a, isn't that just ironic in this story? That the very thing you think would never be true is the very thing that is true. Jonah does nothing to save them while they do everything they can to save Jonah. Uh, but their effort was to no avail. In verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. Verse 14, in a lot of ways, brings us to this climatic point in the life of these sailors. For the first time, these sailors use the covenant name Yahweh. The, the, the way they're referring to God changes, and they use that covenant name three times. So, so now they're no longer praying to sort of the gods. 
They are praying to the one true God, the God, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then you get to verse 15. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Can you imagine that day in those sailors' lives? What a day that is. Now, let's rewind and let's take the exact same story back to the lens of Jonah. Let's look at the pursuing grace of God through the eyes of the prodigal prophet. Now, unlike the unknown, unknowing sailors, Jonah, he, he's got the inside scoop. He knows the backstory. He's lived the backstory. He knows all that's happened before boarding that boat headed to Tarshish. Jonah's heard the word of the Lord. That's verse 2. When God says, arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. And then in verse 3, Jonah runs from God. That's a storied presentation of sin. Jonah runs down to Joppa. He boards the boat headed to Tarshish. But in verse 4, God runs after Jonah. It's the most surprising run in the book. This is the storied presentation of grace. And if there's one truth that this story teaches us, it's that grace has never lost a race. Jonah is on the, ra- uh, on the run, but grace is about to win. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. We covered this last week. That is grace coming in the form of a storm. And again, th- th- this storm is not the picture of God's wrath. No, it is the picture of God's pursuing grace coming to rescue Jonah. It is a picture of the intervening grace of God. The grace of God that saves us from us. This is what God's doing in the storm. He's intervening. He's interfering with the plots and plans of Jonah. As we said last week, Jonah 1 is a storied presentation of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord just loves us too much to let us sin successfully, doesn't he? He just loves us too much. He comes with his correcting grace, his his grace of discipline, this intervening grace. Jonah 1 shows us that God will do whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. Tender violence. Whatever it takes to save us from us. The question for Jonah, and hear hear me, for every runner here, for every runner listening online, the question for Jonah and every runner is, how much of God's tender violence can we take? How much much do we want of God's whatever-it-takesness? How much do we want of God's tender violence? How much of that can we take? And here's Jonah's answer. God, I can take a lot. I can take a whole lot. And you see this playing out. Look at verse 5. At the end of verse 5, we catch Jonah, and it says this, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now, I want you to notice the contrast. You see a contrast in verse 3, in verse 4, and in verse 5. And and anytime you see the word but in the Bible, it's alerting you to there is a contrast going on. 
So right in verse 2, God says, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Then you get to verse 3, and it starts out with, but... Jonah looks at God and says, no, I'm not going to do it. It's, it's a contrast. God is going this way, and Jonah is signaling, no, God, I'm going that way. Then you get to verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great storm upon Jonah, right? It is God saying, Jonah, you're saying you're going this way. I'm not going to let you go that way. No, Jonah, we're going this way. But then you get to verse 5, and you see it again. But Jonah went down into the ship and was fast asleep. Those three buts, those contrasts of verse 3, 4, and 5, it is the narrator, the author of Jonah alerting us to this. Jonah is at war with God. He is at war. He is wrestling with God. And although sin came dressed to the nines in Jonah's life, that sin was doing its deadly work. We talked about this a little bit last week, and, and Jimmy did a great job a couple of weeks of showing the progression of sin in this passage, that sin is taking Jonah down to Joppa, down into the, to the inner parts of the ship. He has, he has gone down into this sleep, and Jonah will eventually go down to the roots of the mountain, chapter 2, verse 6. This story is showing us where sin aims to take us all. It's showing us the deadly work that sin is always aiming to do in our life. I heard one pastor describe sin one time as, as sin working like radioactive material. Its poison is hard to feel at first. If you were exposed to, to radioactive material, you would not know it at first. You would think everything is fine, all is going well, but that radioactive material, sin, is doing that slow subtle, yet deadly work of killing you. This is where sin's taking us. This is what its aim is for us. What you see in verse 5 is what C.S. Lewis illustrated in The Great Divorce. I love the imagery he uses. That people who are moving away from God are seen as more see-through and transparent and empty and hollow. But people who are moving toward God are seen as more and more solid, more and more thick and vibrant, more and more human, right? It's just what C.S. Lewis is teaching us is what Jonah is teaching us, that sin has this way of hollowing us out, of over time killing us. And let's just let Jonah do its teaching work in our lives. There is no sin right now in your life that is doing anything other than this deadly work, killing you. Pornography, nobody else may know about it, but it is doing its, its deadly work in you, subtly, slowly killing you. Pride, it's doing that deadly work in you. Selfishness, arrogance, anger, all doing that, that deadly work of killing your soul. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, you might miss it in your English translation, but in Hebrew, the words of Jonah chapter 1, verse 6, arise and call out. 
It's the exact same words. It's an echo of Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, where God says to Jonah, arise, call out. This pagan sailor, this captain is just mimicking and echoing the words of God in Jonah's ears. Right? The, the same words that interrupted Jonah's life in verse 2 are now interrupting his life again. God's pursuing grace is just relentless, isn't it? Jonah just cannot get away from it. It reminds me of, of this story by C.S. Lewis. He's telling it about himself and his autobiography of just his conversion and his kind of experience of coming to faith in Jesus. It's called Surprised by Joy. And there's this paragraph where C.S. Lewis said, I had always wanted above all things not to be interfered with. I had wanted to call my, my soul my own. Uh, but God interfered. And this is the way C.S. Lewis talks about the interference of God. He says, you might picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. I love that picture. He's saying, I'm in my room. I'm just night after night there. And every time my, my eyes kind of drift up from my work, here is what I feel approaching me. The, the very pursuing grace of God that I'm trying to avoid. And, and this is Jonah. And around every corner, around every turn, he is running into the very God he is trying to avoid. Verse 7. It gets even worse for Jonah. He wakes up to the familiar words of, of chapter 1, verse 2, arise, call out. And, but he also hears the dreaded sounds of sailors casting lots. Wouldn't you love to know what Jonah was thinking in that moment? Oh, no. They're rolling the dice to see whose problem this is, to see why this storm is happening. The story goes on in verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, pursuing grace. This is a storied presentation of Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, where the scriptures say, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's scary, isn't it? But God just loves us too much to let us sin successfully. He loves us too much to let us go unchecked in our sin. Sin always has a way of catching up with you. Even those sins that we have tucked tightly in the closet of our past and are just sure they will never bust out of the closet. It's a storied presentation of Numbers 32. I once had a, a mentor say this to me, and I love this line. He said, sin that we cover, God uncovers. But on the other hand, sin that we uncover, God covers. I love that. I think there's so much truth in that. Sin that we cover, sin that we try to hide, God has a way of uncovering. But sin that we confess and that we bring to God, God just, he gladly covers that sin with the person and work of Jesus. But when we hide our sin, God has to do that painful work of exposing it of bringing it to the light where it can actually be dealt with. And this is the, the painful work that he is doing in the life of Jonah. 
And that, that rolling of the dice, those casting of the lots in verse 7, they carry that warning. That if, if we're here today and we're trying to hide our sin, cover our sin, God is going to uncover it. And he's going to do that out of love in his heart for you. It's going to be a moment of God's pursuing grace not to let you sin successfully. But for every sinner who will, who will, with an open heart, bring their sin to God this morning, here is what God promises to do. He will gladly cover it with the person and work of Jesus. That's an invitation to you today. Those lots are a reminder that God would gladly cover your sin if you'll uncover it, if you'll confess it to him. Verses 8 and 9. Jonah is put on trial and he is peppered with questions. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They're looking at Jonah and, t- and asking Jonah, tell us who you are and what's going on. And then Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, just two quick observations from verse 9. Observation number one. Verse 9 shows us how wide the gap can be between our confessional beliefs and our practical obedience. That, that should just be a warning for all of us of just how wide the gap can be between confessional beliefs. Right? This is Jonah saying, I am a worshiper of God, the God of heaven, who made everything. I'm a worshiper. Really, Jonah? How wide the gap between confessional beliefs and practical obedience. I am a huge fan of good theology. We need good theology. But right theology doesn't always lead to right living. We can say the right things. Your your theology can be so right and like Jonah, you can be on the run. Observation number two from verse nine. Verse nine reveals Jonah's deepest identity. I want you to follow uh, this this observation here. It reveals Jonah's deepest identity. Uh, When they ask Jonah, Jonah, who are you? Uh, Fill us in on the gaps here. Jonah, what is going on? Who are you? Jonah responds first with his race, I am a Hebrew. Then with his religion, I fear the Lord. Do you see it? His first response, his, his reflex is race, Then he gets to religion. And I'm using religion in the good sense of the word, that he is a worshiper of God. And here is the problem in Jonah's life. Jonah's race is greater than his religion. And his his disordered identity, right? And that's it. Anytime that, that who we are in Christ is less than some other identity in our life, it's a disordered identity. And his disordered identity, in a lot of ways, just explains why he's running in the first place, right? If his Hebrewness defines him at the deepest levels, then the worst thing he could ever imagine is a God who would come to him and say, go to a rival nation and give them my grace. That's the worst thing he could imagine, right? This is the sort of repercussions of a disordered identity. So church, can we just affirm corporately together today that we are not first American? 
We're not first white, we're not first black, we're not first brown, we're not first Republican, we're not first Democrat. We are first and foremost a follower of the risen Jesus. Yes. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, what are we hoping to read in verse 12? What are we hoping the next verse is going to sound like? We're hoping we're going to get this. Um, Sailor friends, uh, here's the problem. God told me to go to Nineveh, but I said no. And I've sinned against God. I've, I, I, I ran. I, I ran down to Joppa and I boarded your boat. But God's grace is faster than my sin. God has chased me down right here on this boat. He's caught me. And I'm submitting to God. I'm surrendering to God. Here's what needs to happen. We need to turn the boat around, take me back to Joppa because I'm going to Nineveh. That's what we're wanting to hear from in verse 12. But instead, here's what verse 12 says. Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah's defiance is so deep that he would rather die than do what God wants. He would rather die. You see it again in chapter 4. He would rather die than do what God wants. If we're learning anything about Jonah, it is that that dude has a high tolerance for pain, aren't we? It is amazing. Then you get to verse 13 and 15. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Chapter 1 is about the pursuing grace of God. Now I want to finish with just the last two verses from these two vantage points, the pagans and the prophet. Verse 14, from the pagans' perspective, they have cried out to God, Oh God, save us. Then you get to verse 15. They threw Jonah into the sea, and the sea instantly grows quiet. Just an ima- I can't even imagine that moment. And then in verse 16, we read, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Their hearts melted in the presence of a God who had the power to calm a storm. And notice the progression in verse 16, and really in this chapter. In verse 5, the sailors were afraid. In verse 10, they were afraid. But in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And there is a huge difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. There's a huge difference. I love how one commentator said it. He said, being afraid is what happens when you don't know God. Fearing God is what happens when you do know God. And verse 16 shows us a picture of God's pursuing grace. It's it's alerting us to the reality that God's pursuing grace wasn't just after the prodigal prophet. God's pursuing grace was also after these pagan sailors. 
I mean, it's an amazing chapter, and it's an amazing story. God providentially uses Jonah's rebellion to rescue these sailors. That is how deep and wide and amazing the pursuing grace of God is. Then the last couple of verses to the eyes of Jonah, the prophet. Jonah's, his skin is thick. His defiance is deep. He is still on the run from God as he's being thrown into the sea. Now imagine you get to the end of that moment. He's thrown into the, to the sea. And think what you're, just imagine the first time you're reading the story and you get to that moment, right? That the pagan sailors have been rescued by God and God finally gives Jonah what he deserves, right? He's finally killed the prophet. So pagan sailors are saved. The, the prophet is killed. It's like, that's a great place to end the story right there, right? One chapter story, it's over, and that's a wonderful place for it to come to a conclusion. It's a fitting end. But grace has not lost a race. Jonah's sin will not have the last word. Grace will. And God's pursuing grace takes a decisive step in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It is a sovereign act of grace. God directs this really large fish in the middle of a massive ocean to swim by a small boat and swallow a tiny little man. Jonah is running, but grace, as we're going to see in chapter 2, is about to win. Grace always gets the last word. Isn't the pursuing grace of God amazing? It just is relentless. It won't stop. It won't stop. And then we get to the final phrase of chapter 1. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we get the benefit of reading this story from this side of the cross, and we can instantly see that verse 17 is alerting us uh, that, that the narrator wants us to see through Jonah all the way to the person of Jesus, the greater Jonah, who willingly endured three days, not in the belly of a fish, but in the belly of the earth. Like Jonah, Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath. But unlike Jonah, it wasn't because of Jesus' disobedience, it was because of our disobedience. There, upon a Roman cross, Jesus gave his life for ours, his sinless perfection for our wrath-deserving sin. There, upon that Roman cross, Jesus calmed the storm of God's wrath as he drank every last drop of God's anger over our sin. And then, after three days in the belly of the earth, we're going to celebrate it here in just a few weeks. Aren't we grateful that we have a God who busted out of the tomb, who came out of the grave? That's Jonah chapter 1. Will you bow with me? I'm going to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be.
how would God have you respond to him today? Just there where you are, why don't you ask the Lord to talk to you about that? What's, what's the one thing he would want you to bring down out of Jonah chapter 1? What's the one thing he would want to press down into, the, into your bones this morning? What's one way you could be obedient to Jesus after you have read through, listened to, worked through Jonah chapter 1? And for some of us in this room, those of us online, that, that first thing the Lord wants from you this morning is to respond to his pursuing grace for the very first time. To hold up your life to him and say, God, I am I'm offering myself to you. Yes, I've been running. And God, today your grace has caught me. So, so God, here's my life. I'm trusting in the person and work of Jesus. Rescue me, God. Save me, God. And God just stands so ready today, so willing today to rescue you. So in the best way you know how, you can call out to God, ask him to save you. And for the rest of us in the room, where is God's pursuing grace after you this morning? But where do you find yourself resisting and trying to hold God at bay? What a wonderful morning to lower our defenses, to confess our sin to Jesus, and allow the person of Jesus to cover all our sins. So God, would you talk to us today? Would you help us be faithful to respond to you? In every way that you would be leading right now, God, would you help us be faithful? And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.